Section 10 of Pantrophian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pantrophian by Alexis Sawyer. Kitchen Garden, Part 2. Cucumber. When the Israelites were in the desert, they regretted much the cucumbers of Egypt, which were sold to them at a very trifling price when under the yoke of Pharaoh. We may thence infer that this vegetable was very plentiful, and chiefly in great demand by the lower order of people, for as the Jews were in a state of servitude, they were necessarily assimilated with the most abject of the Egyptians. We see that this cucurbitacea has long been known, and that, after the lapse of many centuries, it is held in the same degree of estimation it enjoyed amongst the eastern nations. The Greeks thought much of the cucumber, particularly of that kind which came from the environs of Antioch. They attributed to this plant marvellous properties, which modern scepticism has completely thrown aside. We think it good in salad, with vinegar, oil, pepper and salt, and that is all. It is, we imagine, the only good quality our farmers ascribe to it at the present day. Formerly, in Greece, the same class of persons, being clearer-sighted, or more credulous, were convinced that this vegetable protected all kinds of seeds against the voracity of insects. To obtain this result, it was only necessary to steep the seed in the juice obtained from the root of the cucumber before it was sown. We freely offer this preservative to those who may wish to give it a trial, and sincerely hope they may profit by this revival of the Greek process. The Romans conceived that this cold and somewhat insipid vegetable, we beg pardon of its admirers, required a seasoning to heighten its flavour. No sooner had they transplanted it from Asia to Rome, then they busied themselves in rendering it worthy of their tables by various preparations, which may, perhaps, interest the curious. First, scrape the cucumbers and eat them with inagarum, or prepare the condiment with thyme, wild mint, pepper and alisander, to which add, as before, garum, oil and honey. Second, scrape the cucumbers and boil them with parsley, seed, gravy and oil. Thicken and sprinkle pepper over the dish before serving. Third, again they may be seasoned with pepper, pennyroyal, honey or sun-made wine, gravy, vinegar and a little sylphium. Fourth, you will obtain a most delicate dish by boiling the cucumbers with brains already cooked, adding afterwards some cumin and a little honey. The cucumber, although but little nutritious, does not agree with cold stomachs. In the north, an astonishing quantity are consumed. The Poles ate them at every repast with boiled meat. Quote, Cucumbers are preserved in a very simple manner. The essential point is to obtain good wine vinegar. After having well washed and wiped them, put them into either white or red vinegar. The colour is better preserved by adding the white. Add salt. Cover simply the vessel containing them with a board. The vinegar must always be an inch higher than the cucumbers, 
and must be entirely renewed at the end of a month. End quote. Parmentier. Lettuce. From time immemorial, the lettuce has occupied a most distinguished place in the kitchen garden. The Hebrews ate it without preparation, with the paschal lamb. The opulent Greeks were very fond of the lettuces of Smyrna, which appeared on their tables at the end of a repast. The Romans, who at first imitated them, decided under Domitian that this favourite dish should be served in first course with eggs, purposely to excite their indomitable appetites, which three courses, and such courses, ye gods, when compared with ours of the present day, would hardly satisfy. The bitter lettuce was sufficient for the frugal Hebrews, but the delicate Epicureans of Athens and Rome were much more particular. They valued them only when a mild and sweet savour invited the most rebellious palate, and awakened the slumbering desires of a fatigued stomach. And what care, what attention did they not bestow on the growth and maturity of this cherished plant? Aristoxenus, a philosopher by profession, an Epicurean by taste, had in his garden a species of lettuce which was the envy of his surrounding neighbours. The worthy man, rendered happy by their jealous admiration, went every evening, without fail, to contemplate the small square of ground which contained his treasure, and sprinkled it carefully with water, doubtless from a limpid stream. Tush! Water to moisten the lettuces of Aristoxenus? No, the philosopher kept in reserve a sweet and excellent wine to quench the thirst of his plants, and to communicate to them that delicate perfume and exquisite taste, the mysterious cause of which baffled the neighbouring gastronomists. The day after, the arch-old man would say, with a roguish smile, that he was going to gather some relishing green cakes, which the earth prepared expressly for him, and the simple countrymen were wonderstruck without understanding the cause. The lettuce, favourite plant of the beautiful Adonis, possesses a narcotic virtue of which ancient physicians have taken notice. Galen mentions that, in his old age, he had not found a better remedy against the wakefulness he was troubled with. The biographer of Augustus informs us that this emperor, being attacked with hypochondria, recovered only by the use of lettuces, recommended by Musa, his first physician. Nothing, therefore, is wanting in praise of this useful plant, literally nothing, since the king of cooks, Coelius Apicius, judged it worthy of an honourable place in the immortal book he has bequeathed to the amateurs of the archaeologico-culinary science of all ages and all countries. Take, says he, the leaves of lettuces, let them be boiled with onions in water wherein you have put some nitre. Take them out, squeeze out the water, and cut them in small pieces. Mix well some pepper, alisander, parsley seed, dried mint, and onions. Put this mixture to the lettuce, and add to the whole some gravy, oil, and wine. Lettuces may also be eaten with a dressing of gravy and pickles. Our ancestors served salads with roasted meat, roasted poultry, etc. They had a great many which are now no longer in vogue. They ate leeks, cooked in the wood ashes, and seasoned with salt and honey, borage, mint, and parsley, 
with salt and oil. Lettuce, fennel, mint, chervil, parsley, and elderflowers mixed together. They also classed among their salads an agglomeration of feet, heads, coxcombs, and fowl's livers, cooked and seasoned with parsley, mint, vinegar, pepper, and cinnamon. Nettles and the twigs of rosemary formed delicious salads for our forefathers, and to these they sometimes added pickled gherkins. Endive. Pliny assures us that the juice of this plant, mixed with vinegar and oil of roses, is an excellent remedy for the headache. We leave to the proper judges a pharmaceutical mixture which does not belong to our province, and which we only quote en passant. Virgil thought endive bitter, but he did not speak ill of it. Columella recommended this salad to fastidious and satiated palates. This is praising it. The Egyptians appreciated its merits, which the Greeks had too much sense and good taste to disdain, and the Romans ate it prepared in the following manner. Choose some fine endive, wash it well, drain off all the water, add a little gravy and oil, then chop some onions very small, strew them over the endive, and add honey and vinegar. It is understood that the sweet savour of the honey corrects the bitterness of the plant, but a judicious attention must preside over the quantity of that substance, for too much or too little might easily spoil this salad of Apicius. Onions Whoever wishes to preserve his health must eat every morning, before breakfast, young onions with honey. Such a treat is assuredly not very tempting. Besides, this rather strong vegetable leaves after it a most unpleasant perfume, which long reminds us of its presence. Wherefore, this recipe has not met with favour, and, indeed, it is much to be doubted whether it will ever become fashionable. Alexander the Great found the onion in Egypt, where the Hebrews had learned to like it. He brought it into Greece, where it was given as food to the troops, whose martial ardour it was thought to excite. Pliny assures us that Gaul produced a small kind, which the Romans called Gallic onions, and which they thought more delicate than those of Italy. At any rate, it was a dish given up to plebeians and the poor. Horace opposed to it fish, the luxurious nourishment of rich and dainty Romans. In spite of this reprobation on the part of the elegant poet, Apicius does not fear to introduce the plant in his Olus Mole, a kind of julienne, not devoid of merit. Take onions rather dry, and mix pepper, alisander, and winter savoury to season a variety of vegetables previously boiled in water and nitre, and which, when very fine, thicken with cullis, oil, and wine. Leeks. This vegetable, a powerful divinity dreaded among the Egyptians, and a food bewailed by the Israelites in their journey through the desert, cured the Greeks of numerous diseases, which in our days it is to be feared would resist its medicinal properties. Everything changes in this sublunary world, and the leek no doubt follows the common law. The authors of a compilation rather indigestible at times, but often very curious, assert that this vegetable attains its extraordinary size by putting as many of the seeds as one can take up with three fingers into a piece of linen, which is then to be tied up 
covered with manure and watered with care. All these seeds, so they say, will at last form themselves into one single seed, which will produce a monstrous leek. This process, which is revealed to us by the geoponics, would have had an enthusiastic reception from those fervent pagans who vied in zeal with each other to see who could offer Latona on the day of the Theoxenias, the most magnificent leek. The mother of Apollo received this plant with pleasure, although presented to her quite raw, but she would probably have preferred it dressed in the following manner. Take leeks, the mildest it is possible to procure, boil them in water and oil with a handful of salt, and put them into a dish with gravy and wine. Or cover the leeks with young cabbage leaves, cook them under the hot embers, and season afterwards as above. Melon. This cucurbitacea, the most delicate vegetable belonging to this numerous family, has always been the delight of the inhabitants of the East and of Europe. It came originally from the most temperate regions of Asia. The chivalric Baba made it known to his Hindu subjects, and the Romans introduced it into the West at the time of their first expedition against the Persians. Melons had a prodigious success at Rome, and soon became a necessity with which the wealthy could not dispense. The Emperor Tiberius, that cruel and covetous prince, liked them so much that they were served to him every day throughout the year. The Greeks, whose ingenious and lively imagination mingled with everything the sweet perfume of flowers, contrived to place the seeds of melons in vessels full of rose leaves, in which they were afterwards sown. They maintained that, when at maturity, this cool and refreshing vegetable was impregnated with sweet emanations, and that its flavour called to mind its sweet and delicious abode with the queen of flowers. Sometimes, also, they macerated the seeds in milk and honey. Not only melons, but all the cucurbitaceae were treated in the same manner, when it was wished to communicate to them a milder flavour. In pointing out these processes in use among the ancients horticulturists, we do not at all pledge ourselves for their efficacy. However, it must be acknowledged that they exhibit a singularly praiseworthy emulation, which has perhaps prepared the way for the wonders with which our modern gardeners have made us familiar. Independently of its exquisite flavour, the melon passed among the Greeks and Romans as being very beneficial to the stomach and head. It is possible that they may have gone a little too far, but then man is so ready to give imaginary qualities to what he loves, that we cannot wonder at their praises of this delicious plant, which we generally eat in the most simple manner, without any other seasoning than a little sugar, sometimes with salt and pepper. Not so with the Romans. Their practised palates required a more exquisite combination. They therefore added to it a sharp savoury sauce, a compound of pepper, pennyroyal, honey, or sun-made wine, garum, vinegar, and sylphium. Melons were not known in central or northern Europe until the reign of Charles VIII, King of France, who brought them from Italy. Radish. Amongst other singularities which abound in the Talmud, the curious can but have remarked the following. 
Judea formerly produced kitchen garden plants so large that a fox bethought himself to hollow a radish and make it his residence. After he had removed, this new kind of lair was discovered. It was put into a scale and found to weigh nearly one hundred pounds. It is a pity that no one preserved the seed of so remarkable a vegetable, which, no doubt, was only to be found in Judea. The Greeks had very fine radishes, but they were not of such a surprising size. They procured them from the territory of Mantinea. Mount Algidea also furnished the Romans with an excellent kind, but which they esteemed less highly than those of Nursia, in the country of the Sabines. These latter cost about three pence a pound at the time of Pliny. They were sold for double that sum when the crop was not abundant. Writers of antiquity noticed three distinct kinds of radishes, the large, short and thick, the round and the wild. They fancied that at the end of three years, the seed of this plant produced very good cabbages, which must have been rather vexatious at times to honest gardeners who might have preferred radishes. In times of popular tumult, this root was often transformed into an ignominious projectile, with which the mob pursued persons whose political opinions rendered them obnoxious to the majority, as we might say in the present day. As soon as calm was re-established, the insulting vegetable was placed in the pot to boil, and afterwards eaten with oil and a little vinegar. The Romans preserved radishes very well by covering them with a paste composed of honey, vinegar, and salt. Horseradish By Apollo, cried mournfully a philanthropic and gastronomic Greek, we must be completely mad to buy horseradish when fish can be found in the market. So thought the philosopher Amphis, and at Rome, as in Greece, this reviled and despised root hardly found a place on the table of the poor when anything else could be had. There were several serious causes for this fatal prescription. This plant was found to be bitter, stringy, and of difficult digestion. It was looked upon as a very common food. The lowest class alone dared to feed upon it. The opulent were therefore compelled to exclude it from the number of their dishes. And again, certain strange customs, authorised by the Roman law, contributed greatly to make the horseradish an object of horror and detestation. So true it is that the manner in which objects are associated with our ideas determines almost invariably our love or hatred for them. Nevertheless, all the species of this vegetable, and there were five in number, distinctly mentioned by Theophrastus, ought not to have been condemned so severely. The Corinthian, the Leothasian, the Cleonian, the Amorean, and the Boeotian were so many distinct and separate species, each of which possessed its own peculiar property and quality. The last named, with its large and silky leaves, was tender and had a sweet, agreeable taste. The others, not so good perhaps, were wholesome and nourishing, and their natural bitterness never failed to disappear when the seeds were allowed to soak for some time in sweet or raisin wine before they were sown. Shall we now mention the properties the horseradish possessed, and which ought to have been sufficient to establish its reputation, if prejudice were not both deaf and blind? Take fasting, 
some pieces of this beneficent and despised root, and the most inveterate poisons will be changed for you into inoffensive drinks. Would you have the power to handle and play with those dangerous reptiles whose active venom causes a speedy and sure death? Wash your hands in the juice of horseradish. Do you seek an efficacious remedy for the numerous evils which besiege us unceasingly? Take horseradish, nothing but horseradish. It is true that this incomparable root attacks the enamel of the teeth, and indeed soon spoils them. But why should we be so particular when so many marvellous properties are in question? As to its culinary preparation, Apicius recommends us to serve it mixed with pepper and garum. Garlic. Garlic was known in the most remote ages. It was a god in Egypt. The Greeks held it in horror. It was part of their military food, hence came the proverb, eat neither garlic nor beans, that is to say, abstain from war and law. There was a belief that this plant excited the courage of warriors, therefore it was given to cocks to incite them to fight. The Greek and Roman sailors made as great a use of it as the soldiers, and an ample provision was always made when they set out on any maritime expedition. It was a prevailing opinion that the effects of foul air were neutralised by garlic, and it was, no doubt, this idea which made reapers and peasants use it so lavishly. However, the taste for this vegetable was not always confined to the people in the southern countries of Europe. It gained at times the high regions of the court. It is reported that, in 1368, Alfonso, king of Castile, who had an extreme repugnance to garlic, instituted an order of knighthood, and one of the statutes was that any knight who had eaten of this plant could not appear before the sovereign for at least one month. The priests of Sibylle interdicted the entry of the temple of this goddess to persons who had made use of garlic. Stilfon, troubling himself very little about this interdiction, fell asleep on the steps of the altar. The mother of the gods appeared to him in his dream and reproached him with the little respect his breath disclosed for her. "'If you wish me to abstain from garlic,' replied Stilfon, "'give me something else to eat.' The ancients, great lovers of the marvellous, believed that this despised vegetable possessed a sovereign virtue against the greater number of diseases, and that it was easy to deprive it of its penetrating odour by sowing and gathering it when the moon was below the horizon. The Greek and Roman cooks used it but very seldom, and it was only employed as a second or third-rate ingredient in some preparations of Apicius, which we shall hereafter mention. Quote, Garlic is called a physic of the peasantry, especially in warm countries, where it is eaten before going to work, in order to guarantee them from the pernicious effects of foul air. It would be too long were we to relate all that has been written in favour of this vegetable. Let it suffice to say that it is employed in numerous pharmaceutical preparations, and among others in vinegar, celebrated by the name of aromatic vinegar. End quote. Bosque. Echelots. Alexander the Great found the echelot in Phoenicia and introduced it into Greece. Its Latin name, Ascalonica indicates the place of its origin, Ascalon, a city of Idumea. 
Its affinity with garlic set the ancients against its culinary qualities, and this useful plant, too much neglected, only obtained credit in modern times. Parsley. Hercules, the conqueror of the Nemean lion, crowned himself with parsley, a rather modest adornment for so great a hero, when others, for exploits much less worthy, were decked with laurels. A similar crown became subsequently the prize of the Nemean and Isthmian games. Anacreon, that amiable and frivolous poet who consecrated all his moments to pleasure, celebrates parsley as the emblem of joy and festivity, and Horace, a philosophic sensualist of the same stamp, commanded his banqueting hall to be ornamented with roses and parsley. Perhaps it was thought that the strong, penetrating odour of parsley possessed the property of exciting the brain to agreeable imaginations. If so, it explains the fact of its being worn by guests placed round their heads. Fable has made it the food of Juno's coursers. In battle, the warriors of Homer fed their chargers with it, and Melancholy, taking it for the symbol of mourning, admitted it to the dismal repasts of obsequies. Let us seek to discover in this plant qualities less poetic and less brilliant, but assuredly more real and positive. In the first place, wash some parsley with the roots adhering, dry it well in the sun, boil it in water, and leave it a while on the side. Then put into a saucepan some garlic and leeks, which must boil together a long time, and very slowly until reduced to two-thirds. That done, pound some pepper, mix it with gravy and a little honey, strain the water in which the parsley was boiled, and pour it over the parsley with the whole of the other ingredients. Put the stew pan once more on the fire and serve. The following recipe is much less complicated and more expeditious. Boil the parsley in water with nitre. Press out all the water, cut it very fine, then mix with care some pepper, alisander, marjoram and onions. Add some wine, gravy and oil. Stew the whole with some parsley in an earthen pot or stew pan. If the illustrious pupil of Chiron, the warlike Achilles, had known the culinary properties of parsley as well as he knew its medicinal virtues, he no doubt would have been less prodigal with it for his horses, and the conquerors of Troy would have comforted themselves during the tediousness of a long siege by cooking this aromatic plant and enjoying a new dish. Parsley, according to some writers, was of Egyptian origin, but it is not known who brought it into Sardinia, where it was found by the Carthaginians, who afterwards made it known to the inhabitants of Marseille. Cherville. This plant, which Columella has described, furnished a relishing dish prepared with gravy, oil and wine, or served with fried fish. At the present day, it is highly commendable in salad. Watercresses. The watercress, the sight alone of which made the learned Scaliger shudder with terror, is supposed to be a native of Crete. It was, doubtless, the cresses of Aelon, Swabia, which are cultivated in our gardens, and not those commonly found in brooks and springs. The Persians were in the habit of eating them with bread. 
They made, in this manner, so delicious a meal, that the splendour of a Syracusian table would not have tempted them. This is one of those examples of sobriety which may be admired, but are seldom followed. Plutarch did not share the opinion of the Persians, but scornfully ranked cresses amongst the lowest elements of the people. Nevertheless, the Romans, as well as the Greeks, granted to this cruciform plant a host of beneficent qualities, and among others, a singularly refreshing property. Refreshing, to say the truth, it refreshes much in the same way that mustard and pepper do. Boiled in goat's milk, it cured thoracic affections. Introduced into the ears, it relieved the toothache. And finally, persons who made it their habitual food found their wits sharpened and their intelligence more active and ingenious. However, it does not appear that cresses ever enjoyed, in Rome or Athens, a culinary vogue equal to their officinal reputation. It was said that its acrid taste twisted the nose, and this coarse jest naturally did it harm to a certain degree with the rich and delicate. Be that as it may, those who dared ate it dressed in the following manner. With garum, or oil and vinegar, or with pepper, cumin seed and lentiscus, leaves of the mastic tree. The watercress par excellence grows in springs, rivulets and ditches in Europe. Its piquant taste is rather agreeable. It is eaten as a salad or seasoning, with poultry and other roasted meat. This plant increases the appetite, fortifies the stomach, and possesses antiscorbutic qualities. A great consumption is made of it in certain countries. It is cultivated in running waters, either in gardens or sown in the shade, where it is watered abundantly. The less it sees the sun, the softer it is. Bosque End of section 10